Amen. One of my earliest childhood memories, it took place in a family-owned grocery store in my hometown. I was uh, about four or five years old, and I was there at the grocery store with my father, and in the checkout line, I turned to my right, and I looked, and I saw some little bitty chocolate footballs, kind of like these on the screen. Maybe you've seen some of these before, uh, wrapped in foil, you know, they're all just kind of placed right there at eye level for me as a, as a child, and they cost probably a nickel, maybe a dime, it didn't cost much, so, so I asked my dad, I said, dad, can I have one of these little chocolate footballs, and my dad responded with his all-time favorite saying, no. My dad loved to say no, so he responds, no, and just kind of dismisses it, and I said, uh, but I, you know, I really wanted one of these chocolate footballs, so I said, dad, please, I added like the most pleading, you know, please, I could possibly uh, add, and, and I don't know why I even tried, because my dad never changed his mind on things like this, okay, so, so I said, dad, I really would like a chocolate football, please, can I have one, and, and he responded with his second favorite saying of all time, which was, I said no. Some of you, your dads might have said the same thing to you, so I was getting nowhere with dad. So as he was putting the items up there and we're checking out, I reached over and grabbed one of those little chocolate footballs and stuck it in my pocket. And I looked around and nobody was watching. Nobody seemed to notice. So I walked kind of nervously uh, from where the chocolate footballs were. You know, it's the first step, right? Flee the scene of the crime. So I went down to the end where they're bagging the groceries and I kind of stood there. And I, I took a, a you know, real interest in, in the groceries being bagged all of a sudden. And, and uh, I stood there and, and uh, my dad finished paying. He reached for the grocery bags and we walked for the door. We walked outside and no alarms went off, you know, no bells and whistles. No military SWAT team came running out to apprehend me for my crime. It was really easy to walk right out the door without paying for my little chocolate football. We got to the car, and we closed the door, and my dad turned, and he looked at me, and he said, is there something you want to tell me? I said, no, I don't want to tell you anything. No, I, <laughs> nothing. And he, he kind of sighed. He said, all right, last chance. There's something you need to say. There's something you need to tell me. Again, I just kind of shook my head. Nope. <laughs> All good here. And he said, I want you to take that chocolate football out of your pocket. And I was, I was like blown away. I thought I was being sneaky, you know. I thought my best efforts at kind of covering that up. I grabbed it, shoved it in my pocket, and went down to the end, you know. I was simultaneously uh, impressed that my dad noticed, all that, and then also terrified about what was going to happen when I got home. Part of my punishment came when I got home, all right? So that's part of my punishment. But the first part of my punishment, my dad made me go back inside the store all by myself and apologize for what I'd done. And not just apologize, but I had to return the chocolate football. So I got out of the car took that walk of shame, you know, my shoulders were probably sunk down really low, and I walked in, I went straight up to that, that uh, the lady behind the counter, and, and I took the chocolate football out of my pocket, and I held it up, and I said, I'm sorry I stole your chocolate football. And by this time, it was like half melted from being in my pocket and being in my hand, you know, but I'm, I'm kind of holding it up, and, and she kind of takes a look at it, and she says, it, that's okay, why don't, why don't you just keep it, <laughs> you know, like we, we can't sell that thing anyway, and, and uh, I was thinking in my head, 
you don't know my father. <laughs> if there's any chance that I'm going to get a ride home, you're going to have to take this chocolate football back. And I wish I could tell you that, that I learned the most important lesson that I could have learned that day. I wish I could tell you that I, I learned all about the truth of God's word that day and that I never struggled with covering things up ever again. I wish I could tell you that I learned the truth of Numbers 32, for instance, where it says, your sin will find you out. I wish I could tell you that I learned that lesson really well on that day. Considering the fact that I was four or five, it would take a lot longer for me to fully learn the truth of God's word. Instead, if I'm being honest, one of the things I learned in light of that little episode I learned to be a little bit better at covering my tracks. I learned to be a little sneakier when it came to covering up the things I didn't want people to see. I learned to pick some different fig leaves, if you will, to cover up my sin. And today as we continue our series on clean living, trusting Jesus in a toxic world, today we focus our attention on hidden sin. I'll just say up front, this may be one of the more difficult messages uh, for us to hear in this series. It's certainly a little more difficult to, to preach because we're talking about the kinds of things, again, that we would just rather ignore, the things that we'd rather just shove down and, and pretend as if they weren't there. But, but as I hope that we'll, we'll see today, hidden sin functions sort of like hazardous waste. No matter where you put it, no matter how far you shove it down, it's always there, and it will, according to God's Word, your sin will find you out, and the same thing is true for me. You see, in the Bible, there's this pattern. It's actually a pretty predictable pattern. You can see it in the Bible, and you can see it in your own life as well. It's a pattern of sin, okay, followed by a cover-up, followed by some sort of denial. And then, in the end, there's always a revelation. There's always a revealing. There's always a reckoning that comes. But that pattern happens over and over in the Scriptures, and and in our lives, we can look at places where that kind of pattern continues. We can look at the places where we sin, where we try to cover that up, where maybe we, we deny the fact that there's even sin present in our lives, but eventually there is that reckoning. Eventually there is a, a revelation because, again, eventually our sins find us out. And that's where the truth of God's word meets the truth of our lives because we understand God speaks truly he speaks about real life even these places of hidden sin in our lives so i'd like to i'd like to ask you to think about this with me as we begin think about some some biblical examples of this that sin and then cover up and denial and then a a, a revelation or a reckoning with that sin you see it throughout the scriptures early on in genesis do you remember what adam and eve did in the wake of their sin all the way back to the garden we alluded to it a moment ago with this image of the fig leaf on the wall. But I want you to hear these words from God's word as we get started today. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes, this is Adam and Eve, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. So look at what they did. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They realized 
that they are without clothing. They realize that there is nothing that stands between them and the eyes of God. And so Adam and Eve cover themselves. They put these fig leaves around. They sew clothing. And you can imagine God's uh, reaction when he shows up and he sees this. He recognizes something is wrong. Something has happened. And so Adam and Eve, it says that they they make these fig leaves to cover up their nakedness. And, And the word of God goes on to say that they also hid from God. They hid in the garden from God himself as he walks through. So in the same way that they're trying to cover up their nakedness, they're also trying to cover up their sin. The intimacy that they enjoyed with God has now been severed because of the presence of this sin. But just like my dad knew that I had that chocolate football in my pocket, their father, God the Father, knows what is going on. He sees through those flimsy little fig leaves, doesn't he? He knows that there's something amiss because God always sees through our fig leaves. No matter how much we might try to cover things up, no matter how much we might try to conceal them, God always sees through the fig leaves, listen, because God always sees truly. We might be really, really skilled when it comes to deceiving others. And some of us, we're so good, we might even deceive ourselves from time to time. But we will never fool God. And we will never be able to conceal things from his sight because God always sees truly. And that pattern begins there with Adam and Eve and it just carries on, it echoes on through the scriptures. In the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, you can look there and you see this pattern continuing. In that next space you have Cain and Abel. And and Cain in this fit of rage, he's so jealous of his brother Abel that he takes his very life. And God questions him. He questions Cain, and he says here in Genesis 4, verse 9, where is your brother Abel? And look at what Cain does. He flat out lies to God. I don't know, he says. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, he's not, Cain's not wearing fig leaves anymore, right? But he might as well be, because this is such a flimsy defense. This is such a flimsy way of denying and covering up. He's committed this sin. And now when God presses him on it, he lies to the face of the Lord because he's trying to get out of his, his sin with a, a lie and a little quip, a lie and a throwaway remark. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is. Go f- ask his mother. You know, like he just kind of throws that away. But all of that, all of that is an attempt to cover up his sin. But God knows better and on and on it goes we skip ahead 30 chapters in genesis 37 joseph and his brothers do you remember that episode where they sell him off into slavery but before they do before they go back to their father they try to cover things up they take that coat of many colors that was such a point of contention for those boys they take that coat of many colors and you remember what they did they kill a goat And they smear that that coat in that blood and they take it back to their father and they say, look what happened to Joseph. Knowing full well it was going to break their daddy's heart. They did it because they wanted to conceal and cover up their sin. And it would take many years before that sin was fully revealed, before all of that was brought to light. But it was because, again, your sin always finds you out and God always sees clearly when we try to conceal and cover up our sin. So we, we could just do that throughout the scriptures, but I want you to just think about it with me, that the way hidden sin works, it works just like that hazardous waste, toxic waste. If you take toxic waste, hazardous waste, and you try to bury it, 
You try to push it down in the ground. And unless it is properly buried and, and, and properly stowed away, eventually what happens is that, that toxic material begins to leak out, right? If you don't deal with it in the right way, it'll leak out into the environment and eventually it'll work its way back up to the surface and the results could be catastrophic. And in the same way, hidden sin operates like that in my life and in your life. We could try and shove it down, we try and sweep it under the cover, we try to just, you know, put it there in the back room and lock the door, but eventually that stuff, that toxic, putrid smell begins to infect the whole house. Eventually that toxic waste rises to the top. And again, when we're talking about sin, the results can be catastrophic. In August 1978, New York officials declared a state of emergency for the little working-class community of Love Canal. It's located near Niagara Falls. A few decades earlier, the 1940s and the 1950s, Love Canal was actually used as a landfill. And so trash, garbage, and everything you know, was brought into that, that canal. And one company in particular, the Hooker Chemical Company, received permission to dispose of this toxic industrial waste. They received permission to, to dispose of that waste there at this landfill. So over a 10-year period of time, in the 1940s and the 1950s, this 16-acre landfill was the dumping site for more than 21,000 tons of toxic industrial waste. And over time, as the landfill began to, to, to fill up, what they decided to do is they decided to cover it. So mounds and mounds of dirt, they cover it up, they fill in the landfill, and the, the property was then actually sold back to the city. They subdivided it for neighborhoods. They began to build houses on top of what was formerly this landfill. And over time, over the years, that toxic waste began to slowly work its way back up to the surface. These hazardous chemicals began to ooze to the surface, and so people would, would report about having these, these puddles of sludge is just steaming and oozing that would just show up in their backyard or, or show up in their basement. Uh, many of the children in Love Canal, the children who were born into these neighborhoods, they were born unfortunately, with, with birth defects. And even more heartbreaking than that, the number of miscarriages in this little community began to, to skyrocket. All the trees and the shrubs began to die off, and they had this black sludge that was kind of a, attached to them. Blood tests years later would reveal an, an elevated white blood cell count and even chromosome damage for some of the people living there in Love Canal. By 1978, that problem was unavoidable. It had reached epic proportions. And hundreds of those families in that community ended up selling off their homes, selling their homes back to the government and evacuating the area. Good thing is that disaster led to the, the, the formation in 1980 of the Superfund program, which actually works to try and contain and, and even isolate and remove those toxic uh, materials from some of these sites but not before those toxic materials left an indelible mark on Love Canal, and even more tragically than that, had forever changed the lives of some of her residents. I want you to hear this. When we conceal our sin, we set ourselves up for a spiritual version 
of Love Canal. When we conceal our sin, all that, that toxic material, that sinful material we've been preaching about and talking about now for several weeks, if we just try and push that down and bury it and again throw all kinds of other things on top of it and leave it there, we are setting ourselves up for a spiritual version of Love Canal. You and I, we might be able to keep our sin concealed for a season. There might be a time where, where we shove all that down and we, and we think, okay, it's, it's dealt with. It's, it's buried and forgotten and, and it's not there anymore, but that is just not true. Eventually, it works its way to the surface because toxic, sinful material always works its way to the surface. Again, as the Word of God says, your sin will find you out. And the biblical story that paints that portrait perhaps most tragically for us is the story of David and Bathsheba in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'd like for you to hear at least the beginning of this passage, 2 Samuel 11. We'll look at the first five verses here. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And she went back home. And the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. That opening line there is telling. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David stayed back. David wasn't where he was usually at this time of year. He wasn't where he was normally going to be when it came to springtime. On this particular campaign, this particular season, David decides to stay back. And that in and of itself isn't wrong. That in and of itself isn't sinful. But here's the thing. By being where he wasn't supposed to be, David set himself up for a world of hurt. David set himself up for a unique temptation by not being where he was supposed to be, by not being where he normally was. And so as we think about dealing with secret sin, as we think about its toxic nature, here's one elemental truth that we want to begin with. But being in the wrong place never helps you do the right thing. Being in the wrong place never leads to making the right kind of choice and making the right kind of decision. When it comes to, to overcoming secret sin, it's important for us to begin by thinking about our context and thinking about where we are and where we're supposed to be. So again, David could have very easily taken some inventory. He could have easily said, you know, this, this may not be the right sort of call. I'm normally out here with my men, but I'm sending Joab. How am I setting myself up for some unique temptations here by being in this area? Or when he goes to the roof that night and he begins to see that temptation unfold in front of him, he pretty clearly knew, okay, now I'm, I'm really not in the right place because this is only going to lead to some bad things. This is only going to lead to sin and heartbreak and pain. And if you know David's story, you know that is absolutely true. His, the back half of his story is dominated by what we read here. So being in the wrong place never helps you do the right thing. So as you think about your own life, 
whatever that particular struggle might be? Is there some secret sin that you're always struggling with? And is that secret sin, is it directly connected to a particular place? Do you find yourself in some places more tempted to do that one thing, to think that one thought, to commit that one act, than you do when you're in other places? If so, then let's avoid that. I mean, that's so simplistic, but as we try and diagnose this and tear it apart, we need to begin here. So if substance abuse is an issue, you have a drinking problem, right? There are certain places you just need to avoid, to avoid that kind of temptation. That's, again, just sort of obvious, but let's just begin there. You know, if you're, you're in a dating relationship with somebody, and you're having a hard time maintaining the proper boundaries of, of purity when, it, when, when you guys are alone, then until you get a handle on that, guess what? You don't need to be alone with your boyfriend or with your girlfriend. You know, you just need to think about the places that you find yourself, the context that you're in. You need to think about your flight pattern. Where do I go? Where do I find myself when I'm in these kinds of temptations? And, and if so, then you need to find someone who can hold you accountable. If you, once you identify those, once you uh, identify the places where you experience temptation so strongly, find, find someone that you trust. Find someone who, who can hold you accountable to not going to those particular places. While we're on the, the subject here, while we're in this, this area, with David, his particular sin, it's, it's of a sexual nature, all right? So his, his sin is, a, is of a sexual nature, and I just want you to know, I just want to kind of drive a, a tent peg here uh, with you, kind of just put a marker down, and you'll hear more about this in the weeks to come, but I want you to know, if you or someone in your life is dealing with that kind of ongoing sexual sin, if, if sexual purity is a real struggle, and as we begin to talk about this and we begin to delve into 2 Samuel 11 and David and his sexual sin, if there's a little bit of, you know, just, just pain and anxiety and stress in your gut because you know, wow, that's, that's really me. I, just, I want you to know, starting in August, Wednesday nights in August and September, we will have some classes on Wednesday night that will be focused on purity. And we'll have a men's class and we'll have a ladies' class and, and that material will, will run on parallel track but not be completely, uh, completely overlapping. It'll be unique for our ladies and unique for our men. But, but we want to spend some time talking about this because, frankly, we're, we're tired of letting Satan have run of the store when it comes to the sexual conversation in our culture. And so it's time for us, as we talked about last week, to kind of get into the game a little bit on some of that. And so on Wednesday night starting in August and running through the month of September, we will have those, those classes available. If that's a, a particular struggle for you, or I would say even if it's not, you probably need to be aware of it because I bet there's someone in your life, statistically, if you, read, if you believe the stats that you read, there's probably someone in your life who's dealing with a very serious sexual temptation. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to be able to help. Maybe that's your struggle. Maybe it's not. Maybe that hidden sin, that secret sin, is something else in your life. You know, maybe when you're around a certain group of friends, you find it really hard to say the things you're supposed to say and not say the things you're not supposed to say. We talked about that last week. Or, you know, it, maybe it's just a, a world of bad decisions that come from being in one particular place. But just know this. Being in the wrong place never helps you make the right decision. David makes a ton of poor decisions here. Because in the wake of, of this sin, he does the wrong thing with Bathsheba. But then in his attempt to cover it up, that's when things go from bad to worse. It reaches an epic level of proportions in David's life. So you follow this story, you can go through and read 2 Samuel 11 and 12. You can read that uh, later on today. But just to kind of play it out for you, what happens whenever David finds out that Bathsheba's pregnant? That's when David says, oh no, I've got to fix this. I've got to cover this up. 
right? So just like Love Canal, they, they got all that toxic material and they're bringing dirt and, and, and concrete and they're trying to cover it up and just pour and dump and dump. So David begins to do the same thing. So he calls Uriah back from the front lines. And he sits down with him. He says, Uriah, you have been serving me so faithfully. You're such a warrior. You know, you know what you need? You need a little bit of a break. You deserve it. So I want you to go home. I want you to rest. I want you to just take, take as much time as you need. Just go home. You know, take care of things at home. Hint, hint. And Uriah, this man of such integrity, he's, he's a Hittite. He's not even a full-blooded Israelite like David. David, as the king, his job was to lead the people in paths of righteousness for the Lord's namesake. It was his job to read the word of God and then live it out for the people. That was the king's primary responsibility as the king of the Israelites. But Uriah is not even an Israelite. He's a Hittite. But look at his integrity. He says, as long as the ark of the Lord is out there and as long as my fellow men are out there sleeping under the stars, I can't go home. I'm going to be sleeping right outside your door there, King David, until you're ready to send me back into the fight. Strike one. So the next day, what David does, on the second day, he says, well, that didn't work. So he has, he has a feast. He feeds Uriah, gives him a lot of food and drink. And he thinks, okay, if I get him in a good mood, maybe then he'll go home, right? Maybe then I can get him to go to the house. But again, this man refuses to go home. He's so loyal, so loyal to his men. He's so committed to the cause. Strike two. So on the third day, you know what David does? He signs Uriah's death warrant. He signs his death sentence. He says to Joab, I want you to put Uriah in the heat of the battle. And then when it's at its worst, just pull back. You know, tell everybody but him. And I want him dead. And David is so sneaky. And his cover-up reaches such epic proportions. You know, after he signs it and he seals it, you know who he gives the note to? He gives it to Uriah. Because he knows that man of integrity won't open it and look at what the king has written. It's for Joab's eyes only, and Uriah's not going to open it even though it's his death sentence. David does the wrong thing because he is in the wrong place, but then to cover up that wrong action, things are never the same. This man, after God's own heart, his sin and his guilt is compounded because of his attempt to cover up, because sin begets sin begets sin. And this episode in David's life, it really works kind of like an extended commentary on, on Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his sin does not prosper. We know that from David's life. But, he who, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So again, things go from bad to worse when he tries to conceal his sin. Things go from bad to worse when you and I try to conceal our sin. Again, we set ourselves up for that spiritual version of love canal. But I want, I want to focus on the, on the back half of this proverb because it is so true. Whoever confesses finds mercy. That word is like a, like a life preserver, right? That, that word is, is, is hopeful. There are some of us right now who are, who are clinging to that. There are some of you, I know, you're, you're wrestling in your gut right now and in your heart and in your soul with, with all the guilt of all those things that you've done. And, and, and we know, again, about concealing that sin. You, you know full well what that feels like. But I want you to contrast that, that concealing with confessing because try as we might, anytime we conceal sin, it's still there. Because the only way to deal with sin is to confess. The only way we deal with sin is confess it to God and then let him deal with it. Because you and I aren't strong enough. We're not powerful enough to deal with our own sin problem. If so, Jesus wouldn't have had to come here and do what he did. So I want you to hear these words about 
confessing our sins. You know, it's, it's sadly not until God brings Nathan the prophet to David that he is broken and that he is able to confess his sin, but he does. And even though the back half of David's story is dominated by, by the consequence of this sin, David is able to enjoy the restoration that comes when he cries out, create in me a clean heart, O God. You see, when Nathan confronts David over his sin, I imagine David was remorseful. I imagine he was sorry. I imagine at first, kind of the knee-jerk reaction, kind of like I was with my dad, whenever he busted me about the chocolate football. I was sorry, but really, if you press me, I was sorry that I got caught. Have you been there before? Yeah, boy, I, I kind of blew it. Maybe I should have kept it in my hand the whole time, you know? Uh, I, I'm sorry, David's probably saying, ah, boy, I, I blew it. I, I'm, I'm sorry I got caught. But David doesn't stay there. David moves quickly from remorse to, to repentance. And I want you to hear this too. That's the key. That's what that confession is all about. It's all about moving from remorse to, to repentance. And so, so we could characterize remorse again as like, I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry what my sin has cost me. But true repentance runs far deeper, doesn't it? True repentance is, is an awareness that, you know, with my sin, not only have I hurt other people, not only am I sorry that I've got consequences here, but, but I'm, I'm truly hurt that I hurt you. I'm truly hurt that I hurt my father. I'm, I'm truly hurt that I hurt my God in heaven. That's what real repentance is all about. Real repentance is saying, I, you know, I don't want to go back into that place where I'm living in a disobedient way that brings harm to you and harm to God. So all summer long, we've been looking at this prayer from Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And Psalm 51 is written. It is the prayer that David prays in the wake of this cover-up. After Nathan exposes his sin, he writes this, this, beautiful, this beautiful prayer. And David has a lot to be sorry for, doesn't he? He has a lot to repent of. You just think, you know, he sinned against Uriah by taking his wife, and then in that cover-up, he plotted and executed his, his murder. He sinned against Bathsheba by objectifying her, by treating her not as a person, not as someone else's wife or someone else's daughter, but instead using her as an object for his own lustful gratification. That's a sin. And so David sins against Bathsheba as well. But David understands something really important. Not to minimize either of those two, because those sins are, are egregious. But as egregious as they are, David understands that the list of, of people, the list of individuals that he has hurt with his sin, that the list of people he has wronged, begins with God. That's the only way I think we can understand what David says in Psalm 51, verse 4. When he prays and he says to God, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David, this is a little tricky, David has sinned against those other people, hasn't he? He sinned against Uriah, he sinned against Bathsheba, he, uh, he took even one of their lives. So I don't think David is trying to shirk any responsibility for what he's done. I don't think that's the case at all. I think he's saying more than anything else, I've sinned against God. My sin has hurt my relationship with God. The same is true for us. Our sin always hurts other people. There's no such thing as a private sin. And in particular, with, with, this, with, with sins of, of lust, and, and we talked about it a few weeks ago, that sin of pornography, kind of the way Satan likes to work is to, to get us to think, well, it doesn't really hurt anybody. That's false. 
Your sin always hurts other people. It always hurts you in ways that you don't even recognize. It hurts other people in ways we don't even recognize. But more than anything else, we need to recognize our sin hurts God. Our sin hurts God more than anyone else. So as we close, the question really for for us is what are we concealing? What are we trying to cover up? What what are are we grasping the fig leaves for to try and, and cover ourselves, to keep others from seeing, to keep God from seeing? Let me just remind you, let me just remind you that God always sees through the fig leaves because God always sees truly. And let me remind you of one more word before we go. Because again, I know when we get to this point, the guilt can be pretty heavy for some of us. So as we close, I want you to hear this word from God. When he says in 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And he'll purify us from all unrighteousness. Satan would have us conceal. Satan is the king of the fig leaf. Satan would want you to do nothing more than just pile on some more fig leaves. Throw some more dirt on that landfill. Keep pressing it down. Keep pushing it down. Sweep it under the rug. You know, just pretend like it's not there. But I have a feeling that the Spirit is telling you a counter message. It has to do with confessing your sin. So I don't know what it is that you've been concealing. But I hope and pray that right now we would hear this word of life. That if we would confess that God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin. All the rest of those verbs are his. Confess is mine and it's yours. But look at what he promises there. Faithfulness, he's just, he will forgive, he will purify. He will create in you a clean heart. So maybe today you need to confess something to someone. Maybe they're here, maybe not. Before the day is over, if, if you need to confess something to someone else and ask for their forgiveness, I hope that you would do that. Today is all we have. You and I, we're not promised anything more than the breath in our lungs. So does that make any difference in how you might need to reconcile things with someone in your life? Maybe this morning you need to bring something to your church family. Maybe there's some ways that we can be encouraging you, something that you'd like to confess so that we can encourage you and pray for you. You'll see, as always, your shepherds. Some of them will be up front here with me. Some of them will be in the back, and some of them will be in the balcony. And you know, we've been doing that for a while now, so it's become sort of standard practice. But let me just say, you, you know why they do that, right? They do that to be near us. They do that to make themselves available to you and me. And if we need to go with one, to one of them and talk and confess something, either in the aisle or to find a private place, you know, lunch can wait. Everything else can wait. They make themselves available to be there you so if you need to confess something to one of them and get their counsel and get their prayers I hope you'll do that maybe today as we sing this song you don't need to confess anything to anybody but God and maybe the best thing we can do is 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 to sing these words over you in just a moment maybe you don't need to sing this song maybe you don't need to stand maybe you need to sit right where you are and let us sing over you and let these words be an encouragement to you as you take some things back to God I don't know what needs to happen but I pray today that you wouldn't conceal it any longer maybe today for the first time ever you need to confess Jesus Christ as Lord follow him into the water of baptism and receive the life the eternal life that only he can provide if so then I I hope that you would 
I hope you would do that today as well. Whatever the case might be, let's take those fig leaves off. Let's live in the light of his confession because he is a good and pure father. Let's stand and sing our song of invitation.